This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Ken and Vaughn of Downline Ministries hosted a track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. Here's the session from Downline Ministries. So how many of y'all have been to every one of our track sessions? You guys have been, y'all been all, all right, this is the core of faithful. You guys have stuck with it through the end. Uh, we have, Danny has gold stars. You're going to hand those out now? Um, we like, uh, yeah, uh, Dennis has the cash. So see Dennis for cash, Dan, Danny for stickers. Um, all right, he was right about this being a crazy mic situation. So, um, man, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, so hopefully you guys have, one, one of the themes I think for us is we've talked about discipling millennials, and I think in, in our, our internal discussions as we've talked about this and preparing for our time and then just even uh, delivering our message is the fact that there are not a lot of, um, there are not a lot of distinctives between discipling one individual versus discipling a millennial. Um, hopefully you've heard that, like these are people that we love, uh, whose uh, Christ's heart beats for them, and we want to love them well and prepare and equip them so that they can impact future generations for the sake of Christ. Uh, so while there are some unique attributes and characteristics and values of this generation that we need to understand culturally, um, the principles of biblical discipleship, as Kenan had said, transcend uh, generations. So you've heard a lot of that from us. Um, just real quickly, um, in my own personal journey, so I'm, I, as I said, I am, I am the youngest of eight. Um, my name's Shad. A lot of people want to know where that came from or if it's short for Shadrach. Um, hate to disappoint you, but it is not. Um, all my siblings' names start with S. So it's Shannon, Shane, Scott, Shell, Sean, Stacy, Stephanie, and Shad. Um, they said they should have named me Stop. Um, so, uh, when I, when I was, when, when I went through downline in 2007 and we were studying Daniel, I was reminded that, uh, Shadrach was not necessarily the most noble of all names. He was a noble, uh, noble, godly man. Uh, but Shadrach was this pagan Babylonian name. I was like, dad, you got to think through these things. Um, so I prefer, you can call me Mishael, um, if you want to, if you want to nickname me. Um, I'm married, been married to sweet uh, Veronica for 17 years, and we have four kids, uh, 16, 14, 12, and 10, um, all boys except for three girls, and uh, they're a blast, and like, like Ken had said, Ken and Danny and I are all exhausted all the time, it's just a really interesting phase of life, I feel like our, uh, if our heads were not attached, we would, we would lose them, and I know many of y'all can relate, and you've been there, done that, and you can encourage us and tell us that we're going to make it through. Um, so one of the so the genera- generationally speaking, you know, I titled this thing "Not Your Grandpa's Generation," and we're playing off of a lot of stereotypes. And stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason because some of them are true. Um, so we're trying to not not to make too many broad generalizations, but use what is true to help inform us and in how we uh, relate to generation from generation. Um, and uh, the generation that from the early 1900s to the 1920s, which would be kind of my dad. My dad was born in 1941, um, so my dad, um, for for a guy my age, my dad is more in the uh, age bracket of a of a grandparent in some respects. Uh, don't tell him I said that, but. Um, but that generation and the generation that followed became known as the silent generation. Um, have y'all heard that before? Okay. So some of you guys that are a little more seasoned and thus older, 
Uh, why, why is that? Can you just give me, like, why, why has that become known, the silent generation? What does that mean to you? What was your name? He's looking at you like you're going to respond, so now you're on the spot. What was your name? Uh, Joe. I'm Joe. Yeah. I don't know. Not sure. <laughs> Any thoughts? Like, what's been y'all's experience with that, of how that would become? <laughs> yeah, there's this sense that, thanks, Ray, so the generation that was hardworking, kind of nose to the grind, focused, didn't question authority, didn't challenge things, didn't challenge, like, and that, again, that's not, uh, that does not define that generation, but, but the, the, the billing of the silent generation, um, I've talked to many in that generation that would say, we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion, you know, there's, there are things you don't discuss, you certainly don't talk about emotions, uh, you know, when it comes to talking about, like, what you're feeling and whether or not you, you know, those are not things you discuss, like, you know, um, We've been having a lot of fun with making fun of like what what the greatest generation would say to the millennial generation, and some of the uh, uh, I think we could actually publish a really good work on some of that satire, but um, I'll spare you. So the the greatest generation, the silent generation, kind of the generation that raised me, and a lot of the men that I looked to were um, were a little more silent and less vocal uh, as it related to um, your your emotions, your faith, your opinions. Um, and so it was more of like get things done. And there's obviously a tremendous amount uh, to be admired and valued. Um, the millennial generation has, is getting, you, you'll laugh at this, and this will not surprise you if you spend any time with millennials. Uh, you know what they're starting to become, the, the subtitle that they're earning? The anxious generation. All right? Um, and if you look at clinical studies, if you look at um, in that in that field of counseling, um, the amount of, uh, of of counseling and therapy uh, that the millennials are seeking and needing as a result of this sense of high anxiety, and there's lots of factors that play into that. Um, I'm just going to talk about a few of them. So, understanding first and foremost that. Um, what millennials need the most are exactly the same things that you and I need. Um, Jesus Christ came to give us life and give it to us, what? Abundantly. Okay, and you've heard this emphasized. Um, all, so, so what does a tree need in order to grow and glorify God? What does, it, what does a tree need to do, first of all, to glorify God? Yeah, be a tree. And what, what does a healthy tree do? He said, bear fruit. What was your name? Christian. Christian? Oh, perfect. You're in the right place. Uh, all right, so uh, Christian in, in name and spirit. Um, so a tree, a healthy tree will grow and bear fruit. It, a tree just is a tree in, in order to bring glory to God, right? Um, and a tree, what does a tree need to grow and to thrive and thus multiply? Water, right? sunshine, dirt. Like basically, water, sun, dirt are the things that a tree needs. So if I were to take Ray out in the back and plant him up to his waist in dirt, water him every day, expose him to sunshine, uh, what's going to happen to Ray? He's going to die. Right? Ray is not going to make it. As strong as he seems to be, he's not going to make it. Um, uh, you and I, in order to grow and to thrive, have needs that need to be met. And all, and in order for us to become who God made us to be, to, to live an abundant, fruitful life, that bears fruit that benefits others, those needs are met relationally. 
All of our needs, uh, the greatest of our needs are not food, clothing, and shelter. There are studies after studies have been done about infants that may just, you know, you've heard the failure to thrive syndrome. So children uh, that were in orphanages in Eastern Europe that were given food, clothing, and shelter, but denied affection, affirmation, touch, and they did not thrive. They actually did not grow as humans were made to designed to grow because of the lack of relationship. All right. So Jesus is a relational being. God is a relational being. He had a relationship with himself before the foundation of the earth. So guess what millennials need in order to grow and to thrive? Relation- and we've talked about relationship, but what's, been really, what's really difficult is to define what is a healthy relationship. And I'm going to try to help define that a little bit. Um, first and foremost, millennials need to know that they, and any human uh, needs to know that they matter, and that they belong. Okay? To matter, mattering is the expression of who you are. So the question that I ask my the question, let me ask you this question real quickly. I think this sums it up even better. Let me ask you this question. I want you guys to think back over all the relationships of people that impacted your life the most. People that you think, man, I would not be who I am without them. I want you to think about who in your life has wanted more for you than from you. Who in your life, did you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, wanted more for you than from you? That they hoped more for you? Do you see that? Um, that, and, and here's the thing about the millennial generation. If you just do a basic search on marketing and millennials, millennials in particular, unlike many other generations up to this point, are being used like nobody else. Everybody is, quote unquote, after millennials. Um, one of the things that we want to emphasize is that millennials, are, this is not a growth strategy. Like, we've got to attract more millennials. We've got to get more millennials. We've got to figure out how to attract. That's, that's not a strategy for growing. It's loving everyone um, and incarnating Christ to others is ultimately the vision and strategy of Jesus Christ. Um, and this is the generation that is given to us to love well and to see and to meet their needs. Humans are given to have needs and meet needs. It's your job and my job to have needs and meet needs and to get legitimate needs met in legitimate ways. And the church is a great place to get legitimate me- needs met legitimately so that we can grow, ultimately bear fruit and become who God made us to be. So the question is, who do I want more for than I want from? The millennials know, we, we know that, that people want a lot from us. The Tic Tac just came out with the new uh, Tic Tac. Uh, this is for a little while back, actually. But they came out with a Tic Tac that was more exciting and released. What millennials wanted was more entertainment and a release from boredom. And so Tic Tac found a Tic Tac that actually dissolved in your mouth in multiple layers that gave you multiple flavors in one little morsel because it had to appeal to millennials. Uh, they're figuring out how to, luxury brands. How do, we market, how do we market to millennials for luxury brands? So... Everybody is after this cohort um, and because they want something from them. The church is the one place where it should be said that this is a place where I want something for them. And a lot of your questions that you asked the other night indicate that. And, and I assure you, the people in your life that, uh, that the people that have been in your life that you know that they wanted something for you, you know that you matter and that you belong to them. Mattering uh, is that I value the way that you express who you are. Okay, um, that I value that 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 I value the unique way. And, and, And remember this discipleship and parenting is about helping other people, uh, 
uh, you know, Scripture talks about raising a child according to the way that they are bent. It's like there is a natural bent to each of our hearts. The things that you and I see, the things that we are passionate about, the things that we desire, each one of us see different things and have feelings about the things that we see and are drawn and engage those things in different ways. And each of them are extremely indispensable and valuable to the expression of the local church, to the incarnation of Christ and the gospel to the world. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, no? All right, I'll take the nod. So, so our job is to help our as a parent and as a discipler, as a pastor and a shepherd, help them, help individuals see the way that they are bent and help them walk according to that way. The reason that the millennials are becoming known as the anxious generation is, um, is a multiple, multifaceted. One of those is because, because of a lack of a relational attachment to people that they know are for them more than they want from them, that, that we're left to become who we think people want us to be in order to belong to them. If I'm not in relationship with somebody that I know that accepts me for who I am and will love me no matter what, then I do not have the freedom to be insecure with that person as I try to figure out who it is God made me to be. And don't mishear me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not on the whole gender identity. That's, that's a whole other. I'm talking about within the vein of how God made us and where he wants us and has called us to follow him. That's what I'm focusing on. Um, and so in the security of a relationship where I know that I belong, um, that my son, Jack, my daughters, Ainsley, Abby, and Claire know that I love how you're made. Ainsley, I don't want you to become like Abby. God gave me one Ainsley and I want this Ainsley to become the fullest version of herself that she can possibly be. And I will love you and you will always belong to me. No matter where you go, no matter where you're from. Drew Holcomb, y'all know Drew Holcomb and the neighbors. He's in Nashville now. He's a native Memphian. We're kind of proud of him. Um, Drew Holcomb has a song about Tennessee. They play at the UT football games. I don't like UT. Don't get me wrong, but they play the song, therefore I accept it. Um, but it's, it, he, said, he talks about his dad, Hamp, who's on our board, and he says he's a lion-hearted man. And he talks about his mom. She's a Jesus-loving woman. And he says, no matter how far from home I roam, I know there's a place I always belong. That part always gives me chills. There's a place that no matter who you are, where you go, what you've done, uh, it's, it's the prodigal son. Um, here, here's what, how many of y'all heard the expression, um, uh, or have ever said this to your kids? I don't mean to shame you if you have, but you're like, hey, if you walk out that door, what? Don't come back. All right. Here's what Jesus says. He says, where you're going, I can't go with you. Like where you're going, I can't support you. I can't be with you where you're going. The path that you're on, I can't go with you. I can't help you. I don't know how to serve you. I can't, I can't be with you down this path. And, if, and I can't stop you from going either. I can't stop you from taking a path of destruction. All I know is that if you, when you come back, I will be right here. The light will be on. The table we set. You belong here. And this is home with me. With me is home. This is where you can thrive. And it breaks my heart and tears me to pieces that you're going this direction that I cannot be with you because all I want to is to be with you. That's love. Delighting in someone's presence. Curious about their heart. Willing to stand in their way. Willing to be hurt by them even, but not harmed by them. Like, I'll go with you as far as I can go, but there's a point where I can't go with you, but I'll, I'll always be right here. That is the security of mattering. Belong, it's, and, and another way of saying it is that your work is not your worth. Like, you, you, you mean more to me than the product of your efforts. That, does that make sense? Is that not Christ? Does Christ want more from me or more for me? Like every, every discipline, every service, every mission, every act of ministry is an opportunity for me to have more with him. 
That makes sense? So, where does the anxiety come from? Um, I, I call it, um, and I didn't make this up, a guy named Phil Herndon uh, had taught this to me. He's in Nashville also, Murfreesboro guy, proud of it. Um, he, uh, it's, it's living life on the ladder. Um, millennials, and this, and I, I always, every time I say the word millennial, I realize that this is everybody. But I will say, I think uh, because of the overwhelming number of options and accessibility to information and entertainment and possibility for this generation, there is an extreme uh, low tolerance for loss. So I would say, I think it's safe to say, and this is just me talking, that millennials have a very low loss tolerance. And I would put myself in that category. Um, and here's what I mean by that. How many of y'all have heard the expression FOMO? All right, what does that mean? Yeah, fear of missing out. Uh, that's not what I thought it meant. Thank you for correcting me. i uh, just kidding. So FOMO, fear of missing out. The whole idea, uh, so millennials, one of the stereotypes for millennials is non-committal or lazy, or they're always waiting for a better offer. Um, the whole idea, so, so one of the things that I try to help um, anyone see is this whole idea of, of loss. Every, every yes, with every yes, there is a loss. Everything that I say yes to, there's something I had to say no to. All right, so when I say a, a, low, uh, a low loss tolerance, um, there's, there's nothing that you and I will share more in common in this life, in this time between the times, there's nothing that you and I will share more in common than the experience of loss. Like life is full of, of losses, things that we did not get to experience. And that can be as extreme as losing a life of someone you love to being like, when I order the chicken and waffles, I don't get to eat the meat lover's pizza. Like those are like, and it can be that, it can be that the paralyzing. Um, so the, so analysis paralysis or the, the inability to commit to something uh, because of the fear of having to actually, and then, it, and then it goes on beyond that. Uh, like if I do choose this path or if I do choose this major, if I do choose, choose this church, that somehow uh, what God had waiting for me, the spouse I was supposed to meet, the job I was supposed to have, the place I was supposed to live, all of a sudden my life is, I find myself at 60 years old living in a van down by the river. Um, you know, that, that is kind of the, so being able to have a, a tolerance for a loss. Uh, and I think that tolerance is built in relationship, um, of mattering and belong. So life on the ladder, life on the ladder says this, um, I am, that is supposed to be an individual, um, it's a little bit like an octopus, um, so life on the ladder asks this question. It asks the question, how am I doing? So the, the question that I'm they're, that, that they're constantly asking is, um, am I doing this? Am I doing this right? Am I doing what I should be doing? Um, is, is this is and ultimately it's do you accept me? Like, do you accept me? Do you accept who I am, how I express myself and what it is that I'm doing? Um, and it's always in comparison to somebody else. Um, it's always, and and the, the idea is that if somehow, and, it, and this is all performance and works based, okay? This is all performance oriented. Um, that if I can get to the top of the ladder, this is called the land of Est. I, if I can be the smartest, if I can be the fastest, if I can be the sexiest, if I can be the, uh, the richest, um, if I can have the most power, the powerfulest, um, if I have those things or if I have accomplished those things, then I get all the things that I 
think that I need in order to have what it is that I wanted to have? And basically, ultimately, does that make me matter? Do I then have purpose? So there is a, uh, there is a frenetic sense that I've got to climb this ladder. And by the way, what, what do we all know is at the top of that ladder? Another ladder. Yeah, there's never, there is never a place. So instead of, instead of becoming who we're made to be, we try to become who we think the world wants us to be so that we can have the mattering and belonging that we should have in Christ and in community. Does that make sense? Um, and this is all, uh, this is all self-righteous because we're the ones that are determining, we're the ones that are making the determination of what makes somebody matter. Um, and, and we're the ones setting that superficial standard. Um, so if, if we can create, like in creating intimate relationships with the people that we care about, where we're wanting more for them than from them, to give them the security of knowing that they matter and belong with us. Um, one of the guys that I meet with is extremely anxious, and this, he used to work on Wall Street. Um, he graduated from Dartmouth. So doesn't lack for sense, and at this point in his life, doesn't really lack for money. Single dude, did pretty well, pretty low overhead to exist. And among one of the most anxious people I've ever met, uh, riddled with fear because all the things that he accomplished in a short period of time that were supposed to give him the security and the mattering and the belonging haven't. And so he's having to relearn literally how to live. And I told him, I said, here's, the only, here's all I want to be able to provide for you in our time together. I said, all I want to be able to provide for you in our time together is a space where you can rest. Because he doesn't know how to rest. Because every, everybody, because he's smart, because he's hardworking, because he's self-willed, everybody wants to use him. Right? And the flesh in me wants to be the one that disciples him and gets him, like, and he's going to be the really successful guy in 15 years that's singing my praises. If, you know, instead of giving him what he needs, using him to get, what the, use him to get validation for myself. Does that make sense? So for him, like he needs a space of rest where he can know that I don't want anything from you. I want nothing from you. You have nothing that I need. Now, I love you. And in relationship, I derive, you know, through that relationship, we get a lot from it. Um, But I don't need anything from him. I want more for him because I know that he can't sustain life at that pace. He can't sustain life constantly afraid that he's making the wrong decision, that he's going the wrong path. and, And in the meantime, missing the actual fuel of life, which is love and relationship. In, in, in this process of performing, there's no room for being in relationship and being human. And that was, that was my second point. Um, we really have to, and this has been said in different ways, but gosh, we've got to help people, give people permission to just be human. And I say just, not because it's deficient. There is something, and something uh, risky that can be embedded in our discipleship that somehow tells us that we're going to mature and to the point that we transcend humanity. All the guy, a lot of the people that I looked up to and the people that I wanted to emulate, from the outside in, from what I could tell of them, they looked like they had no struggles, their relationships were co- intact, their career was secure, they didn't have any financial anxiety. That, so everything that I was seeing and observing from the outside looked like they weren't human. There was something in me that said that if I, I was going to be able to mature to the point that I, I, would, I would become more than or somehow become superhuman. Um, which meant that I didn't tell the truth about my weaknesses. It meant that I didn't tell the truth about my struggles. meant that I hid my sin. Uh, meant that I, I was simply in a, addicted to performing for other people in order to get their approval. 
which is exhausting and is truly the seedbed for more sin and more addiction. Uh, Because when your performance doesn't get you the approval that you ultimately crave, you've got to turn to something else to numb the pain of the loss of the relationship that you are trying to earn. And guys, if we learn nothing else from the gospel and the Bible and the scripture and the church is that there are two things that grace and love have deeply in common and that is they cannot be earned and still be legitimate grace and love. I thought I'd get an amen on that. That was like the climax. I was like, man. Thanks, Kenan. Uh, <laughs> um, so so that, that um, you don't, they, the goal is not to become more than human. So being, being human is not what's wrong with us. Jesus didn't come to save us from our humanity. He's not, he came because we were human, right? And he became human in order that he could relate to us and be uh, as human and that we could actually enjoy intimacy with him as a human. Um, Paul says that in our weakness, what? That, yeah, that his power is made perfect through our weakness. Not because we transcended humanity and had no weakness. Um, uh, Ari was talking about fear leading to faith. Did Jesus ever experience fear? Yeah, when? The, yeah, I mean, we, you and I probably do not know fear like that fear. It wasn't just the fear of the pain. It wasn't just the fear of the cross. It wasn't just the fear of the nails. It was the fear of complete abandonment and separation from his heavenly Father, whom he had never not known union with. I know it does double a negative, but it's for emphasis. Like he had, there was never a time in his existence for all his eternity that he had never been separated from his Father. And what did Jesus, what did God do in the midst of that fear? In the midst of Jesus' humanity, what did God do? Do you remember who he sent to comfort him? Angels that encamped him and comforted him so that he would have courage in his fear. Our relationship with people in discipleship that we're parenting, that we're loving, is to help them take courage. Jesus said it all the time to the disciples. I like to sign off my emails with keep heart, take courage. Uh, Heart, and when someone is discouraged, when they are disheartened, they need another human being to come alongside of them and give them courage that they don't have for themselves. Like So Ari does that for for her, her girls of saying, this is scary, I'm with you in your fear, and you have the courage to continue to bear the pain of hoping. Because you're made to hope and you and I can never stop hoping. Y'all with me? So being human, like uh, we, we, have, we have contempt for our humanity at times. And let me tell you this. The degree to which you are willing to accept or unwilling to accept your own humanity will be proportionate to the intimacy that you experience with people that you disciple. And I'll try to say that again. The degree that I, let me, I'll say this, the degree that I deny my own neediness as a human to say that I am weak, that I am fallen, that I am flawed, that there are thoughts that I have that disgust me, there are fears that I have that I feel like I should have outgrown, there are things that I feel like I should be at 38 years old that I'm not, my unwillingness to admit those things will be proportionate to my ability to actually have an intimate relationship with another human being who's sitting in the same stuff. And we've touched on that a little bit, but we, we have contempt at times for the fact that you're human. And that's where the judgment of the millennial generation stems from. That the more I deny my own neediness and say, well, I didn't have to do that. I didn't have that when I was that age. I, I, was, I was doing this at this age and they're, you know, dilly-dallying around playing video games. And it's, it's, it's a unwillingness to embrace the humanity of where culture, and, and like Ari said, we have a lot of responsibility for, ha- for some of the negative aspects of where this generation is, is on our, that, that's on our hands. So how do we meet them in that instead of judge them for it? How do we love them through it? How do we come alongside of them and, and want more for them than, than from them? So helping them, giving them permission 
to be human and even modeling what it looks like to be human uh, without, without contempt for it. Um, oh, and what I, I know I had a sub point here. And, and Kenan has touched on this. You've heard us say this. That is, I'm telling you guys, uh, the power of story. Um, and this is, this is not limited to our testimony. The, your testimony, in particular, your faith journey, is a huge part of your story. Um, tying this back to the idea of the silent generation, uh, my dad and my dad's dad, they don't talk about themselves. Like there, there was something, and maybe Ray, you can help me with this. Like there was something about, uh, like you don't talk about yourself. Um, like it, you don't brag on yourself. Um, you, you know the things that you did. You, you the some of the aspects of your story. Um, there are things that you you just kept internal. Um, and if you look at scripture, if, and, and I think that that uh, with withholding the because it's ultimately not our story, right? It's ultimately Jesus and God's pursuit of our hearts and how He has developed and cultivated and created our hearts to, to better incarnate Him. Um, learning to tell the truth about your story and all of its particulars, the shameful, uh, the glorious, the honorable, the dishonorable. Um, C.S. Lewis, you guys know C.S. Lewis, writer of Chronicles of Narnia and... Um, and that's the one that most popular, but obviously a prolific writer, theologian, philosopher. Um, he was quoted as saying that uh, that friendship starts with the phrase "you too." Y'all ever heard that before? You guys know the power of when I when someone tells you that they had been sexually abused in the past and how they had lived through that and and been. Uh, counseled through that and found recovery through that, and somebody that that had had a similar experience that may have never told anybody else because they didn't think anybody could understand that they thought they're all alone and they're going like you too. Uh, somebody that said they've struggled with addiction, pornography, sexual identity, all those things to be able to tell the truth or or even to celebrate well with one another, to be able to come together with and and one of the things that we try to do in our groups when I'm together is times of celebration. Uh, Ari called it scars and. Stars, yeah. So, like, we're even we're even ashamed to celebrate with each other because we don't want to be considered boastful. When in, when in reality, we know that it wasn't me that did it. That in our prayer and our pursuit and our efforts, that God somehow decided to bless these moments and these experiences, and that we have safe places where you can go, like you, like in these discipleship relationships, that you you have a safe place where you can come and you can actually celebrate the things that God is doing that you expected and didn't expect that you could have never hoped for or ever dreamed, and and he, they can celebrate freely with you and not be judged or envied. Like, you know, because a lot of the times we're afraid to tell people the good things that God are doing because we don't want to come across as braggadocious and we don't want them to be jealous of us. So we just keep it to ourselves. But like we got to have a, have a safe place where we can go and grieve fully and celebrate fully. And in the Hebrew culture, guys, that was the continuum of full living, celebration and grief. That's why they had so many stinking amazing parties. They were so good at throwing parties. And that's why when they grieve, they grieve, they tore their clothes, they shaved their heads, they sat in sackcloth and ash. And according to Job, that was considered worship. I don't recommend that for your services. I'm just saying. Um, all right, so the power of story of being able to tell the truth about your own life without having to pretend. One of the other points I was going to make, make about the millennial generation is they are allergic 
to pretense. Any millennials give me an amen in that? Are you like allergic to pretend to pretense? Um, like I feel like they can sniff it from a mile away. We've talked about authenticity. Um, we don't don't they don't want a, a, a someone pretending to be something they're not. Um, but but authenticity and intimacy is extremely attractive, right? Um, if I'm not honest with my kids about my own humanity, then I am projecting for them a false sense of what it means to be an adult. Like if I don't tell them the truth about the fact that as an adult, there's still struggles, there's still pain, there's still loss, there's still fear, there's still anxiety, and, and life, is, life is tragic and God is faithful, and He will still be with you in all of those things, and I will still be with you in all of those things. That uh, um, Aunt Claire was my youngest, so these are the ones I remember the most. You know, she would come in the middle of the night and knock on the door and say she wanted to sleep in our bed. And you'd say, of course, why? And what would she say? Scared of, scared of the what? Scared of the dark. And I'm like, you know, I don't know how you guys do this, but we don't have a nightlight in our bedroom either. It's like we don't, we're not sleeping with lights on. So it's, it's, it's scary in my, it's dark in my room too, Aunt Claire. So she's not, a, she's not afraid of the dark. What's she afraid of? Being alone in the dark. <laughs> Nobody wants to be alone in the dark. I don't like being at home alone by myself when the family's not there and I'm 38. Like I'm still scared too. Like, so, so instead of saying, you're fine, go to bed, nobody's there, it's like, I, you know what? I, I can be scared of the dark too. I get it. Like, that's human. And, and your fear can lead to faith and wisdom. Um, so our ability to tell the truth about our lives with integrity, and, and this idea of integrity or authenticity, um, it's, uh, it's not merely telling the truth. Integrity, are there any engineers in here, contractors, construction all right, so what is integrity in that sense? Yeah, uh, what was your name? Jason. So how well something holds together. Uh, how, uh, how well can a structure bear a load? Because if it doesn't have integrity, it fractures. Um, if there's too much pressure, then it doesn't hold up. So if, if you're talking to someone and you ever have a sense, you're like, something just doesn't line up. We're talking about what you say, how you say it, your facial expression, like all of that, there's alignment, that it has integrity. Who you are at 2 a.m. is who you are at 2 p.m. That's integrity. Um, not that there's perfection, but there's a, there's a sincerity and there's a truth, there's integrity. And integrity bears weight and integrity bears relationship. Um, like I can be with a broken person who knows that they're broken and can tell the truth about it. And, and other people, and that is attractive. Right. A lot of times we're so afraid that if I tell the truth about my life, that it's going to be it's people are going to do what? They're going to reject you. And that will happen. Uh, but more often than not, when I started to tell the truth about my own story, which I wish I had time to share. When I started to tell the truth about my own story and about myself and what was true about the parts of myself that I hated, people were there were people that were attracted to it that could handle it, that could be with me in it, that wanted more. They wanted healing for me and they didn't want to judge me. And, to, and reject me. They saw, they wanted me to have what somebody had done for them. So integrity and, tell, and, and, and knowing your story and not having to make it something it wasn't and, to, and letting God use it in a way that, uh, that glorifies Him and ultimately brings encouragement and heart uh, to somebody else. Um, all right. Permission to be human. Oh, last thing I'll say. Um, and then we'll have a little, uh, little panel discussion and maybe uh, answer some questions.
Um, I touched on uh, I touched on hope, and hope is probably one of my favorite. Um, what would you even call that? What is hope? <laughs> um, uh, Hebrews eleven. We've touched on that some. This idea that you and I are made as hopeful beings. Um, in Hebrews 11, it talks about, in the hall of faith, it talks about these men and women of renown whom the world was not worthy. Uh, some of them, you know, so you have, you have um, Abel, who was faithful. What happened to Abel, this side of heaven? He died. Not only did he die, he was betrayed and murdered by his own flesh and blood. And he was faithful. And then the very next person, Enoch. Enoch was faithful in what? Yeah, he didn't taste death. Uh, so one thing I draw from that is that God does not reward faithfulness the same way this side of heaven. Eternally, like so Abel was faithful and he met a gruesome death. Jesus was faithful and met a gruesome death. Enoch was faithful and never tasted death. Who was more faithful? I don't, that's not even a valid question. Um, they're both in this hall of faith, men of faith. And he goes on to talk about all these men and women who were hopeful for what? What were they hoping for? Do you remember? What is it? Another place. A homeland, not the one that they came from, but the one. So life is uh, is linear. Like we are headed somewhere and you and I are so made for eternity. We have eternity in our hearts in such a way that we cannot know the beginning from the end. Ecclesiastes chapter three talks about that. We have eternity in our hearts. Christians in some ways have it worse than nonbelievers because we know we're made for eternity that we don't get to experience yet. So we know there's this place called home that we'll be in one day, but this is not it. And in the midst of our hoping, there is going to be loss and pain and hurt and sorrow and things won't go the way that we hoped that they would go. And so then we are left with this choice. Do I keep hoping in the meantime? Uh, The idea of hopelessness, uh, hopelessness is not the absence of hope. It's the suppression of hope. Part of your job and mine in the life of millennials and anybody that you care about and love is to continue to fan the flames of their hope and remind them that there is still a place called home and we are on our way there. And even in the midst of the, and, and having the courage to bear the pain of hoping. Does that make sense? Um, that you cannot, uh, people, uh, psychologists will tell you, there are some that will say, and I'm not one, but I've been around a lot of them, uh, that some will say that people who commit suicide um, are not taking their own life because they've lost hope. They've taken their life because hoping hurts so much. That makes sense? Like to hope again and to know that in my hoping that I'm, it's likely that it'll, I will suffer more pain in the midst of it. It's like it, hoping hurts too much. I can't bear the pain of ho- continuing to hope that someday this will get better, that someday this won't hurt, that someday... Does that make sense? Um, uh, so, the, so part of what our jobs are in our relationship and our love is that we're wanting to fan the flames and continue to hope for people what they, when they can't hope for themselves. To hope for them the same things we hope for ourselves. You want to know what somebody wants and needs in their relationships? You start telling the truth about what it is you want and need. And more likely than not, it's going to, be, it's going to align with what it is that they want as well and figure out how to help them to get it. Um, so fan the flames of their hope continuing to hope in a place that is not home on this journey that we're on together and that we don't have to do it. We don't have to live this life solo or in isolation um, that through the design of Jesus Christ that we can be with others as they grow into who it is that God made them to be. 
so my charge for us uh, in light of this conversation and topic of thinking about this next generation and millennials of um, and as has been said, and I hope that we re- we've reiterated this for those of y'all who've been with us the whole time, is that um, this generation is remarkable. Like what they're doing and accomplishing and the heart that they have and the willingness they have to go places that others will not willing to go, to, to the desire to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to value something uh, that's greater than them, to be a part of a bigger movement. Uh, Memphis is, uh, is, according to recent studies, more millennials are moving to Memphis. Like we're in the top five. And part of why we suspect that that is, is there are tremendous, there's a tremendous movement and places of opportunity for millennials to be plugged into um, justice opportunities to meet the needs of others. And there are great ways to be a part of something uh, that's, that seems to be going on that's, that's bigger than them. And we, we, so, so the millennials that we get to work with and that we're around, I feel like we're getting kind of the cream of the crop. Um, so, um, it's been a beautiful thing for us to be able to see that. And hopefully an encouraging thing for us as the church to know that, um, yeah, while there are some problems and issues that we need to address, uh, there's a lot to be hopeful for. And there's a lot of reason to continue to pour in our hearts and invest and develop, uh, this next generation. All right. Um, with that, maybe we'll turn it over to, uh, our little, uh, our panel discussion. So I think Ari and Danny and Kenan, and I think Danny is going to serve as our, uh, MC moderator so i think you can use this mic and then uh oh wait yeah so here's here's kind of where we've come we started with this idea of hollow and hallowed that those of you who were there kind of just looked at what's really unique about millennials and that's what shad was talking about it's an incredibly challenging topic to address because we're talking about biblical discipleship and in biblical discipleship one thing we know is we have to meet each individual uh where they are and so in some way we even admitted out of the out of the gate that uh, it's unhelpful in some ways just to say millennials, we disciple millennials like this. So we sort of said that out of the gate, but at the same time we wanted to kind of give you a little idea of uh, just kind of sociologically how millennials think and, and sort of the trends in that regard. Then we moved into kind of what millennials need, and we talked about uh, that they need the church, that they need deep theology, uh, those types of things. Uh, then we had Jamie Trussell come and, and give kind of a brief update of some of those cultural shifts that are happening amongst millennials, the way that they think can kind of help us think kind of uh, where they're coming from. Then Ari this morning was from fear to faith, kind of moving into more practicals of how we disciple uh, millennials. And then Kenan did his entire session number four on how he's discipled millennials over the last 10 or 15 years. And then we sort of end with this one, which I think is a really helpful way to end, which is what we've been talking about the first four sessions are relationships. It's going to boil down to meeting them where they are in a real relationship, as we were joking in session one, a real relationship with a real millennial. <laughs> and, and so that's sort of where we end, is what does it look like to have a real authentic relationship, and that's how we're going to help them grow. So that's where we've come so far. Uh, so we have time for your questions as well. We, I've kind of been compiling some, some questions as well. I taught in the first session. I've been listening to these others. I've got some questions uh, listed as well that we can sort of dialogue about, maybe some, um, some things I need to learn as well. I'll fire at these folks, but let's start with you guys. Um, is there anything, uh, anything sort of looming that you'd like for any one of us in particular to address, or maybe the whole team? Anybody? Yeah, go ahead. Don't forget to repeat the question. I'm yeah. to more Generation X than it was millennial. Okay. The question is for the recording. Uh, we used the latter analogy in this last one. Um, where did it come from? Does it does it uh, apply to millennials? Uh, the suggestion from the audience maybe it uh, applies more to Generation X. Yeah, so uh, the, this, this actually guy named Phil Hernan, he's at Sage Hill Counseling here in uh, Nashville, actually, um, uh, therapist. So 
in my experience with, you know, I've worked with millennials and, and it, I think it applies to all humans in part. I mean, basically, uh, I, and this, I'll speak to myself and I'm generation X, um, and the millennials that I work with, uh, there is a, there is a sense that in order to matter and belong, I've got to produce something. Um, that there's something that, that my, my work or the byproduct of my working is what gives me value. And that's what, that's, how, that's what I would want the gospel and relationship to war against and that, that the work comes from an outflow of my passion, of who I am. Uh, and, and so that's, that's part of the message that I try to communicate um, with the millennials that I'm in relationship with and, and working with, um, that, that my identity... Uh, is not wrapped up into how I compare or that I'm not using comparison as the basis for my identity. Um, yeah, I think, I think Regan said something too. Right? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Go. Um, <clears throat> one thing we did with the, uh, I needed to hear that all of this toiling, all of this working is, is in vain. Like, it, what is it really going to produce? Because they're so, um, so consumed with, I've got to have this. I've got to make this this statement about myself. I've got to come to this um, position in life. And so helping them to see that you could do all of that, but it means nothing if you don't have a relationship with God. If if God is not your first and foremost, then it doesn't mean anything. So I don't know. I haven't used the latter per se, but I do see how that comes from, you know, looking at Ecclesiastes. And as I shared earlier, I don't even know if we really should use the term millennials because I think it is just discipleship of people in general. So, Yeah, I think uh, the one thing I'd add to this too is uh, most of the, the social science folks, this is maybe what happened, what's happening kind of right here even in this, this dialogue is what you can find is, you know, millennials very much uh, took a couple of different paths even within the generation. And so... And that, I think that's to all of our point, which is that's why it's so hard to say this is how we disciple millennials. And that's not even to mention the fact that we haven't touched on this, but uh, just grant uh, any geographical location you go to, you know, uh, discipling millennials in inner city D.C. and suburban, you know, Tacoma, Washington, or, you know, like we would probably have a di- sort of a, yeah, north and the south. And so I think that's important, too, to, to recognize, even from a social science standpoint, that they do say that millennials sort of took two different paths. So um, that, that's more more reading on that. I think is necessary. I don't totally completely understand that, but the idea is um, that um, we can't blanket them. In fact, some of them kind of saw what was going on with their parents and ran as far the way the other way, and some of them sort of stayed in that stream, you know, of, of their parents and things like that. So right. Well, and there's a there, there's a uh, the subcohort too. The Zillennials, you know, uh, uh, Generation X is the subcohort of the Millennials. <laughs> And um, the, the other part, too, is a lot of the millennials that I'm interacting with, even to your point, the younger ones, while they're wanting to pursue a passion, there's a prescribed path. A lot of that conflict comes even with their parents, where there's a conflict of, my parents want me to become this because this is the secure path, and I want to become this. And so there's a working through of what does that look like. Um, and even that can take on, that's not a corporate ladder, uh, that's just a ladder of where do I find acceptance and belonging, and do I have to become something I don't, I'm not, in order to gain it? Um, so, do you want to say something, KB? Yeah, you know, just in terms of uh, Gal's question as she's talking, I was just thinking 
Yeah, to not, not confuse what Shad just said, the corporate ladder for this metaphor, as much as we're all probably climbing some ladder for our, to find our self-worth, and the gospel's meant to free us from that. Even if the ladder you're climbing is a rebellion against the previous generation's ladder of corporate ladder, understanding that even if it's a, a ladder of um, self-expression through um, uh, countercultural rebellion, <laughs> That, uh, that ultimately all of the, the, the latter merely, merely leads you to uh, a deeper longing for self-worth and, um, and identity and dignity and those things that are only found in Christ. So uh, I would appreciate I'm not, a, uh, again, any kind of a prescribed expert on millennials. And, um, just, uh, just right above that generation myself and spent a lot of time working with them. But I was curious, just to the gal that asked the question, other than um, that metaphor potentially being confusing, I was wondering what you do see, and you just mentioned it there a second ago, uh, a couple things with those younger millennials. Where do you think they're falsely putting their hope? Where do you think they're falsely putting If Gen X was a climb the ladder, especially viewed in the corporate ladder, I would just be curious, just as a learner, not, not for any other motive to ask the question, but you seem like you're passionate about this. What, what do you think the younger millennials are, uh, are misplacing uh, hope or or um, uh, performing for? For themselves. Okay. The approval of others. I guess you agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, I would agree with that as well. But yeah, for themselves, for the approval of others. So again, the gospel is the only remedy. Um, it's the only thing at the top of the ladder. And of course, we don't have to climb a ladder to receive the gospel of grace. But uh, that's what, to be able to, even to know the millennial generation like this gal does, to be able to say, I feel like that metaphor needs to be applied in this way, that's the key to discipleship, being able to understand them because you have a relationship with them. So I think that point's well illustrated, and I appreciate that. What else? Anything else burning out there? Any questions? Yeah. So I guess I would ask I'm ready to start, you know, achieving in this discipleship. I'm just curious as far as your thoughts on that. Let me try to summarize it real quick just for the recording. So the idea is one of the observations um, from the audience is that the, that this generation can kind of be complacent, um, maybe maybe less struggles less as the generation previous with performing and going, achieving, climbing the ladder. And um, so how do we find that balance? We do want to build a relationship with them, but if they do have a tendency to be complacent, where how do we find that sweet spot of, um, meeting them where they are, but also encouraging them and challenging them to step up and to grow to the next uh, level of maturity in Christ and things like that. that. Yeah. Any thoughts, guys? I really feel feel that question, and yeah, there's some of the, some of the young men that I've discipled over the years, and even presently, sometimes I feel like um, really need a, a kick in the pants, just life wise. Um, and that's again not to I don't mean to stereotype the whole generation like the guys in the back can't see me I don't mean to stereotype generation that, that, that could be true of anybody in my generation as well so I want to be careful to go too far with that but when that's true yeah is it is it me desiring for them anything apart from what God's desiring for them or is there a good godly desire towards responsibility in a certain area this guy doesn't have any and how do I lovingly present that? I'll speak the truth in love on that and, and, and let that even be something he takes before the Lord. So a lot of it is the relational tone and the trust that you have. But in the same way, a, a Gen Xer might be tempted to become righteous or self-righteous in his, the fact that he's going and responsible and working in these areas to be responsible. That's no less sinful. 
uh, putting your identity in how, how much you get after it and aren't lazy in, in anything important than someone who's complacent. So realizing that the sweet spot is, is, uh, is, a, is a, anytime you're responding to the gospel with a spirit-filled life. And he needs that encouragement just like I do. And my tendency might be to uh, trust in my performance for God. His might be to be complacent for God. What we want to do is uh, continue to uh, wash one another in the gospel and, and that the response pushes us forward like, like I got a bunch of young married guys. Um, I'll admit, without saying any names, um, <laughs> you know, one of them... One of them Danny. <laughs> one of them does seem to be more pretty complacent in how he is loving and serving his wife. So there's a sense where the gospel um, pushes us towards laying our lives down for our wife as Christ has laid down his life for us. That's a, that's a good, godly thing that, uh, that we all need to be reminded of, and this brother may need to be pushed towards. If I put my, um, if I take pride in the point of how I love my, well, self, uh, my wife, as I love myself, as Ephesians 5 says, to the point that I become self-righteous, I would need to be confronted with that self-righteousness. So anytime our response moves from the gospel to laziness or to uh, self-righteousness, there needs to be a correction. And I think the relational brotherly love and accountability we have for one another is to try to stay centered in the gospel. So I think it's okay. Some, some stereotypically millennial, which remember might only represent 15% of the generation, says that, hey, they may, there may be more of a complacency, right? whereas you may, if you're a stereotypical Gen Xer, may have some more of a performance issues. Both of us need each other to make sure we're gospel-centered. Does that make sense? And anytime I bring forth one of those challenges, it's not, hey, I think you need to do this. It's what does the Word of God say that we need to do, and how are we uh, exhorting one another towards that end? And what does that look like? And where are we struggling? What do we need to confess? So we let the, I mean, the Word of God needs to be our authority, our standard. It doesn't change generation to generation. That's what's so beautiful. And no matter what our weaknesses or the way we've been shaped by our culture in a way that is um, uh, negative or even and sinful, the gospel will bring the correction. We need one another to, to be able to see those blind spots in one another's lives. That, uh, that sort of reminds me of, I think D.A. Carson was the first to say, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to, you know, another quote, earning. I, think it's a, I feel like I'm always coming back to that with those I'm pouring into. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're don't, we don't have to have this passive mm-hmm. you know, sort of, uh, we're afraid to get real serious about something because it might become legalism you know, or something like that. Grace compels us. But when we step into that, that area of feeling like we're doing this to earn something or earn approval, now we're in, we're in dangerous territory. Did you want to add anything to that, Ari? <laughs> One thing I do uh, with the ladies is we study through Proverbs 31, and um, I usually have a lot of single women, and so I help them to see that that verse is not just talking about a married woman, it's just talking about any kind of woman. Um, And one part of the passage, it says, she does not eat the bread of idleness. And so we talk about that, like, what does it mean to be idle? Um, and, And one of the things is sitting on the gifts that God has given you. So we talk about spiritual gifts. If God has given you the gift of hospitality, are you using that or are you being idle in that? So helping them to use the things that God has given them first, and then once they start using that and enjoying that, then that makes them even want to do more, if that makes sense. Um, And so those are the things that God has called them to, like he's already gifted them in those areas, and so spurring them on to do that. Um, In the area of working and things like that, I guess for the girls that I've had, they've all, 
you know, been working and things. But I think the biggest thing I've seen is um, the idleness in in relationships and the idleness in pursuing community. Like they just want to be pursued, and it's like, no, you need to pursue. Like you go up, you start something, you invite people to your house, and not just kind of sitting and saying, well, no one's invited me. I'm not. No one wants to, you know, me to hang out. It's like, well, no, you text, you you find out. Like you develop real relationships outside of Facebook, like you really develop some real relationships, but that goes back to idleness. And so it's easier to just sit back and, and let people do things for you and just watch everybody else work in their gifts, but it's much harder to actually step out and start doing it themselves. So Yeah, so one last thing on that. Yeah. Not to belabor, but just to piggyback on our example, if you're studying the text and you're in Proverbs and that comes up, it's just such a great conversation to be able to ask the question, uh, what does idleness look like in your life? What does unhealthy idleness look like? Let them speak to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? When they start confessing complacency, then, and you're also confessing, now, now you're a confessional community that's moving towards Christ-likeness and your willingness to surrender to a gospel response of, of grace-producing effort. Does that make sense? So it's not me projecting on you where I think I'm strong and you should be strong. That's where we, that's where that's just really self-righteous. We are all in great need of uh, continual repentance and faith to be gospel-centered Christ followers. And if you have a, if there's a sense of idleness or complacency in the things of God in your life, hopefully we'll be able to be seeing that together because the scriptures will call us to a standard and we'll talk about where we need grace, where we need Christ and how we can support each other. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, look down judgmentally at your complacency. It stands with you as one and needs to not be idle in the godly things that we're called to pursue. I'm going to interject with one real quick. Oh, no, I won't interject with one real quick. Go ahead. <laughs> so, um, do y'all have like a rule of thumb in terms of how many people you're trying to people that you are discipling? Like, can you talk about the rhythm Great question. So the question is, uh, first part of that question is um, sort of how many people to disciple at, at once? Do we have sort of a rule of thumb for that? And then the other question, the second question is, how do we integrate, if there is a discipleship group, whatever number that might be, those that were leading to Christ, how do they integrate into those groups and uh, what the, that process looks like? Anybody want to jump in? <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, my groups are about one to three people, and for the way my life is right now, that's all that I can handle so that I can do life on life with them. Um, because we have a group where we meet together, and we're, that's when we're studying the Word together, and then outside of that, I get one-on-one -on -one time with each of them. So if I had any group bigger than that, there's no way I could get one-on-one -on -one time with them. Um, as far as the ones that I evangelize and then kind of bring into a group, so one of the things with my current job, I work at a recovery center, and a lot of the women that I end up um, seeing coming to know the Lord, by the time they graduate, I ask them, do they want to be in a discipleship relationship, and then I'll go one-on-one -on -one with them. And so I've done that with one woman, but I haven't brought her into a group. It's just been one-on-one, -on -one. but it was because I saw her come to the Lord. I was her counselor when she was in the recovery center, and then when she graduated, then it was like, okay, do you want even deeper relationship? So. I'll just add one little thing to that. I won't tell you everything I'm doing. I shared some of that in the first uh, session, but for me, uh, so I'm in a more traditional Southern Baptist church. We do Sunday school, and so we use Sunday school as sort of the pool. So we, uh, we co-lead the class, 
and there's about 12 couples in the class, and I take six of the couples, and the, our co-leader takes six of the couples, and we're looking for those who are especially hungry. So we're teaching every week, but we're looking for a couple uh, people that, that are maybe wanting more, and we're, we're pouring into them. And I'll just be honest with you, that's one of our, my struggles right now, is I've told you about this Muslim family that we've been working with for three years, and they're, they're willing to come to church with us now. Uh, which is fantastic to just kind of kick the tires and ask questions and things like that. And I'm, I'm struggling because I, I'm not comfortable inviting them into that, that group. Um, and so we're talking about that as a group. What's wrong with what we're doing here that it feels odd to bring a non-believer or a seeker into this? Um, and part of it's because we haven't thought through that question. So I'll just admit that sort of and kick it on. I would just uh, say something. I think we had another question coming. Just just to add to Scott's question there, um, you know, Jesus discipled twelve, um, and and he didn't. He wasn't married. Didn't have kids. Granted, he was saving the world, but <laughs> but um, but generally speaking, I, the principles that he modeled. How many people can you realistically do life with? Uh, gee whiz! And uh, so I, I have a lot of young men just in my uh, place as a pastor that will come and say, "Hey, could you disciple me?" That's a yes uh, in a discipleship ministry and pastor church. So that, that might be a question I get more than some. And um, generally, I, I don't. I, I'd love to, but I just uh, realistically, if you start saying yes to everybody, you're really discipling nobody. And so um, the goal for me is to really get quality time with a few guys at a time, and as they, by God's grace, see them grow and mature and be multiplied out to be disciple makers, are able to kind of open some space for other guys, just kind of a lifestyle rhythm. Anytime I have an opportunity to lead somebody to Christ, I really want to make sure that's a person I'm uh, continuing on in a discipleship relationship. That probably takes a priority in my life. And then secondly, um, secondly, if, uh, if, if the Holy Spirit just really nudges me, like just has someone on my heart really strong, unexplainable, and continually... And I feel like that's probably somebody I should invite into a, uh, a relationship with. It's a lost person, or uh, but either way, a discipleship relationship. I agree with what Alec Absalom says. I think it's how it starts at hello. Somebody I think the Holy Spirit is impressed upon me to invest in. But for me, that's always going to be a handful of guys. You know, maybe it's five, maybe it's six. But when it gets past that, I really feel stressed, stretched to have quality time with those guys. So I'm thankful it's a slowly revolving, ever changing um, group of guys. But uh, for me, in this season at least, I, I can't find much more time. Um, to, uh, to really disciple them that. KV, will you answer mm-hmm. really quick? Um, I know there's another question, but uh, Kenan walked through in, in this fourth session how his church does this with discipleship communities and the gospel journey. He was talking about the curriculum they use. So I'd love for him to address really quick. How would you, how would you train, or how are you doing that in your church, the, the, the DC leaders, the mm-hmm. discipleship community leaders, mm-hmm. on if they are living out their faith out there and leading people mm-hmm. to Christ, do they yeah. come into the discipleship community? Right. Do they come into like a discovery thing, or maybe that would kind of help shed light? Yeah, one of the struggles that we that we can um, bring upon ourselves in a church like ours, where there's a real focus on discipleship to the point that everyone wants to get involved, and that's exciting. And maybe that's not normal, but there's excitement. But the uh, you can begin to be kind of a closed circle, even if there's a lot of people in our church and there's a lot of new folks, but still. Um, Everybody can look next to him and find somebody to disciple, but we got a lost community out those doors, and, and I really want to keep our uh, focus outwards. And so one thing is we, could have, we put a constant focus in, uh, and again, this is our language and our tool, so this, this, you'll have to contextualize this. We put a constant focus on uh, 
each path that comes up, so three times a year we have a 10-week path coming up. Don't miss the path. Find somebody, again, to, uh, that you'd like to go with, a godly man or woman. We're challenging everybody. Even if you're far from God and never had a relationship like this, this is your chance. We want to help. I'll even tell them, come, come talk to me. I'll help you find somebody. I, this is a big deal to us. If you're a godly man or woman, we ask you to make sure you don't miss a chance to, to invite someone to follow you as you follow Christ. You're already following Christ. Invite someone to come along with you. What we'll challenge them is if they invite three people to have one of them be a missional effort to reach a lost person. Doesn't have to be. There's no rule. We just say think beyond the context of the church. There are, and the reason we say two out of three, and again, this this is general. Um, being folks near because there's a bunch of young men in our church that need need somebody to pull them under their wing and disciple. And we, and we have a responsibility as a church family to those individuals. But we also want to, and I think the group dynamic will be helped if you can get not some just random stranger in there, but somebody that somebody's got a relationship with that's not a believer or maybe a brand new believer. Maybe somebody thinks they're a believer, but you're, you know it's it's unsure whether they really uh, have been converted. I feel like it's a help to that group. It keeps the group missionally charged. It keeps the other uh, maybe believers that are young. They all of a sudden, uh, you hear them getting real passionate about explaining Christ to this other guy. It just really keeps a lot of life in there. And so I try to do the same thing. That's what I've talked a few times about. We'll usually have one lost or brand new believer in the groups of guys that I have. And then just one last thing on that. We we encourage something something to do as a group. Uh, We encourage some... Uh, some uh, doing doing evangelism together. We uh, we're, one thing we're doing is training our people and sharing the gospel. Uh, I go to the apartments across the street from our church about every other week, and just go door to door. Not because I think it's the most effective way to do evangelism, um, and uh, or anything like that. For me, it's a chance to just remember we're surrounded by lost folks. Trust God to do what I can't do and turn the lights on, and be sharing the gospel with guys I'm discipling. Now, I don't have a lack of expectancy. We uh, we've prayed with some folks to receive Christ, and that's really excited, exciting, and. Um, but but it's as much about training them to share the gospel and, and um, staying hot in my uh, passion for the lost as it is about specifically reaching those people. It's, it's part of making disciples. And um, anyway, so uh, I think to, to just to Scott's question, yes, anytime there's a new convert, a uh, new believer, or somebody the Holy Spirit impregnating them, if they're rejecting the gospel, but the Holy Spirit just won't let me loose of them. That's a priority, and, and if they're, first, if they're going to be somebody I'm discipling, and if there's just absolutely no way I can, it'd be somebody I ask one of the guys I've discipled to disciple. Does that make sense? Or, or, or someone very trusted in our church would not just leave them hanging or say, hey, here's the times of our services next week. I hope to see you in church. We'd absolutely make sure and put them in a discipling relationship with someone. What else? On. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see where you're, I see where you're going now. You got receivers. Oh yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, and lots, lots there, and I'm, I'm following everything you're talking about. And that, that's, those are hard questions because we're talking about the aspect of selection, right? Is uh, who do we disciple? So uh, for the uh, for the uh, recording here, uh, we're asking the question of when you they need the people that you're trying to influence and you're trying to find disciples and trying to find people who are interested. 
um, they need to show some interest as well. And 2 Timothy 2 says that they should be faithful men that will be qualified to teach others as well. So what do we do, in short, with those who uh, don't express an interest, don't receive us, don't seem to be wanting to go far? Do we just leave it there, or do we continue to pursue? Um, I think you continue. Well, okay, so let me backtrack. Um, if the Lord has put someone on your heart, I think you begin to start a relationship with them. So I'll give you an example. There's a young woman in my church that I would see often every Sunday, like serving. And I was like, man, she is on it. She's always here early at church. She's doing this. So then what I started doing is when we would have our small groups every once in a while, she would join them. She would join our Bible study. She would join our breakfast. And so I just started having conversations with her over and over again. And then I'm getting to know her and I'm knowing her name and I'm, I'm following what she's doing. And then I, uh, we started talking about discipleship and I was like, okay, Lord, I really feel like this is somebody that you might want me to disciple. So I, I sent her a text message. I said, hey, I'm thinking about um, this and I want to know if you would like to get into a discipleship relationship, if you want to study and grow. And she was like, yes, I want to do it. So that's when it's good, right? There's other times where it's not. Um, so I can give you another example where um, I had a young woman who was in downline, actually. She was an emerging leader, and so they were supposed to be disciples. And we're in the group, and she would come to the group like this, like just like, I'm just not here. I'm here, but I'm not here. And I would lovingly say, okay, sis, I love you, but this is not working. It's just not working. I'm still your friend. I'm still here for you, but this is not what you want at this time. And so being able to be honest and saying, I'm still going to have a relationship with you, but it doesn't have to be like this. Does that make sense? Right. So you're not going to invite her into your discipling group. Right. She's not ready to receive Right. Because in, in essence, what it's going to do is it's going to harm the group more than help the group. Mm. Because all the attention is going to be on her trying to get her to be involved. Mm. Does that make sense? So I'm like, come on, answer the question. Come on, make a your verse. And I don't have, I, I personally don't have time to, to, to do that. <laughs> you got time for that. I think, I think that, that, that kind of zeroes in, I'll come to you, I think that kind of zeroes in on what you're getting at, because that was the conversation we were having before, yeah. right, about having a non-believer come into a discipleship group, right? So that's a, the idea, I think that, uh, Ken, you can, you can uh, restate, sir, where you are on this, but yeah, the general idea was meeting a non-believer who's interested, mm-hmm. meeting somebody who's, hey, right. here's what we're doing, we're going on this journey together through scripture, that sort of thing, but yeah, I'll come hang out and listen in on that, um, not... Uh, not sort of dumbing down the the content and uh, derailing the thing um, for those purposes. Maybe I should have clarified one thing. Yeah, that wasn't it. Was wasn't like, hey, what's your name? Um, I got a group of guys on Thursday studying Galatians. Would you join us? That there was, there was relationship building with the with the lost person to the point of relationship trust in a sense of man. It, that, that's what I was saying in the session I taught earlier. If we have the chance to get, usually for me, the last two of these have come from guys I met in the gym, <laughs> and uh, and and both opportunities were relationships built one on one to the point of lunches, hanging out, doing things, knowing a lot about each other, and then uh, that that trust and platform built the chance to say, hey, I got a study I'm doing with a group of guys. I really think uh, the Lord would have something for you in this season with everything we've shared, man. I, I want to learn these things with you. Would you be part of that? And knowing that's, that's kind of that scary question that you hope relationally you've had the chance to ask. And if he goes, yeah, I'd be interested in that, man. I say, well, once he's here is a guy that's hungry and we'll see how long the Lord kindles that hunger, but I feel really good about him coming to know the Lord. Cause now he's going to be surrounded with guys running this race, building relationships with him, loving him. So yeah, that, that wasn't a, an immediate conversation. And something Soup always told me was you can't, can't carve rotten wood. 
and uh, and sometimes there's a a sense of um, somebody that's just really in the context of Second Timothy two too not faithful. And I want to be slow to. I mean, I'm not faithful every day in all kind of things, but but a general sense of this person. There's no hunger there. There's no spiritual hunger. I think you can keep loving, keep praying, keep teaching, but you really can't disciple somebody that's not following. And that's what discipleship is: followership. Question, right here. Right here. So when you're trying to lead a person to find their identity in Christ, like do you see maybe there's how there be a problem labeling them a millennial? Like how do you navigate around that? Because that's that's almost offensive. Like. Mm-hmm. And talk about millennials, then like label them that if you're, you're trying to get them to find their identity. Yeah, yeah. I think I think every one of us. <laughs> yeah, we've all. Long, have, were you guys here for any of the other sessions? That, okay. Yeah, actually, that's probably been the the, the heartbeat of the, the whole thing all throughout. Um, is that we actually from the very beginning sort of saying like, is it really helpful to have this backdrop of what every millennial is like if actually we're just trying to disciple them and help them find Christ? So we echo everything you're saying. Yeah, we've been in side conversations. We've been saying, yes, yeah, discipling people. Right. Yeah. Yep. And to that end, we, we we didn't ask to speak on discipling millennials. Might be important to say that. We, we didn't turn that topic in. That's they, uh, they asked us to do it just because of the emerging leader program at Downline has about 40 uh, college graduates in the millennial generation that come and they said, you guys have experience working with this generation. Will you come talk about millennials? And the first thing I said when Bobby said that... I think... Yeah, well, the first is that, yeah, we never talk about discipling millennials or talk about them or what's different about them. We just start discipleship relationships. And I, I, the first thing I said here, and the first thing I said to Bobby when he called was, hey, i got to be honest, if you want me to bring some totally different package of how to disciple millennials that's different than how Christ taught us to make disciples, I feel like it'll, uh, we're really going to miss it because I don't know what that is. And he said, no, 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 just talk about what y'all are doing. I said, let's just make disciples. It's the same standard Christ gave us. We don't acknowledge, we don't sit down and talk about um, uh, anything differently because of the secular worldview, the, the aspects of that worldview they're being fed in this day versus any other day. We talk about the truth of God's word in the context of relationship, inviting them to follow us as we follow Christ. Um, yeah. Oh, they were, they were oh. clapping for you. <laughs> so, uh, but we, we, yeah, we want to demystify that tag. We, we, want, we don't even want millennials to think of themselves as somehow uh, different um, uh, in terms of how they would receive, know, follow Christ, and be multiplied as, as Christ followers than anyone else. And I think we all we all have gotten weary of the uh, kind of the derogatory, like it's a like that millennial. When you say millennial, most of the time that is in some negative, like that's intended to be some negative title. It's like it's just has a category of when you're born. There are cultural differences and experiences and values that are valuable to understand, no different than engaging any other culture. Uh, but but most of the time, it's uh, oftentimes it's the older generation somewhat looking at what is different or what is differently valued and saying that's wrong. It's like it's just no, it's just. A different experience, and most of the things that we're saying are wrong, or things that we, the older generations, created <laughs> for them. So we had just as much a hand in it. Yeah, I'm glad I got to clarify that at the end. Yeah, um, at the very end. But it has That's been why enjoyed, left. especially for those who have uh, been with us this whole time. Um, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's been great. Let me close this in prayer, and we'll stick around too. If there's any looming questions that you have, let's pray, and let's ask. Let's all do this corporately. Let's let's just ask. Uh, in our own in our own hearts, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us meet people where they are and, and build discipling relationships. So God, we do thank you. 
you're good, you're faithful, we're not, and yet we're, uh, we've been moved by the grace of your gospel. And now we're sitting here underneath your word and we're looking at it and we're saying we want to be faithful to what you've called us to do. And we're also humbled that you'd actually allow us to participate in this mission. So now, by your Holy Spirit, as we leave this conference here in just a couple of hours, would you, by your Holy Spirit, help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep our hearts purely focused on you and your glory in this process? And then that you would bring those around us who are hungry and faithful. And you'd give us a heart that breaks for the lost. And ultimately, you'd give us the courage to engage them, love them like you loved us, and give them the truth of your word. We know that that's only possible, that transformation is only possible through your Holy Spirit. So we give our lives to you every day in that response. Help us by your spirit to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Downline Ministries' track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.